Mali and Algeria put France on high alert today, Friday, January 18th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The fate of several hostages in Algeria is still unknown. We'll hear about the natural gas facility where they were taken. It's literally in the middle of the desert. There aren't really many places to hide. You know, you are sitting out in the open desert. But on the, on the other hand, it is extremely well equipped with communications. I mean, you, you go down there, your Blackberry will work fine. And later, why the Chinese government calls single women in their late 20s leftovers. The tragedy is they don't realize that as women age, they are worth less and less. So by the time they get their MA or PhD, they are already old, like yellowed pearls. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It's all Algeria and Lance Armstrong today. Those are the dominant news stories, and not just here in the U.S. In fact, if you live in France, a country that is directly affected by both stories, it could be a tough call as to which one is getting more attention. Pierre Aski is co-founder and editor of the French political analysis website, Rue 89, Street 89. So, first of all, Pierre, are these stories, Lance Armstrong and the crisis in Algeria, this BP natural gas plant, are they competing? Is one kind of edging out the other among the French public? No, I think, uh, to be honest, Algeria is on top. It's uh, the, the most, uh, obviously, dramatic, and it's also affecting some French hostages as well as other nationalities. So it's definitely on top. But Lance Armstrong is, is not far. And in bar discussions, it's definitely on top. Well, we'll talk Lance in a moment. Let's talk Algeria first, though, a country that is close to France physically and historically. We don't really know who died at this BP natural gas plant in southern Algeria, how many died, who did it, etc. And France and Algeria go way back. So what are you saying in your coverage today about how the French and the French government are dealing with the Algerian situation right now? Well, first of all, there's indeed the, the shock of not knowing, which I think is the, the biggest uh, nightmare for many people, is not knowing who was taken hostage, who died, who's alive, who escaped. And the Algerian government is definitely no help in understanding what's going on. The second thought, I think, in, in many people's mind here is that we expected the Islamist group to counterattack after France sent troops to Mali to stop their southward column. Mm. And we didn't know where this counterattack would arise. It came in an unexpected place, I must say, which is this gas installation in Algeria, because during this Algerian civil war, the oil and gas installations were among the most protected. So no one expected them to strike such a strategic location. But people here fear that the next target might be anywhere, might be in the center of Paris or in any city in France. And we have stepped up security measures in the country with armed military patrolling the railway stations, uh, airports, and this is becoming a familiar site of Paris. Are the French looking to President uh, François Hollande for a little information and guidance on, on what's happening with both Mali and Algeria right now? Well, François Hollande has been president for only nine months, and, and there was increasing doubt about his ability to lead the country in these troubled economic times. 
all of a sudden he emerged as a war leader, which was very unexpected, I must say. He's been very present in the first few days of the Mali intervention. With Algeria, it's a different case because he is trying to, let's say, not to aggravate the tension with Algeria. Several countries who are involved in this hostage crisis, like Japan or, or the UK, have criticized the way the Algerian government was handling the crisis. Not France and not President Hollande, first of all, because of, of the past. We, France had had a, a very tough war with the independence of, of Algeria, and it doesn't want to lecture Algeria on, on how it can handle its uh, domestic affairs. And secondly, France needs Algeria, which has allowed its aircrafts to overfly its territory on the way to Mali. So the situation is, is a bit different on, on this issue. Well, more on the crisis in Algeria in a moment. But before I let you go, Pierre, I've got to ask you about uh, Lance Armstrong and how the French are seeing this story today, his confession to Oprah Winfrey that he took performance-enhancing drugs. What's the reaction? Well, let's say the French are ironic and a little bit cynical about it because they're in a mood to say to the Americans, we told you so. You know, for a long time, any criticism of Lance Armstrong coming from the French was seen as bad losers or, or bad players. And now the Americans themselves are saying it, and Lance Armstrong is finally admitting it. So the French are in a, in a kind of a revenge mood. But everybody is quite fascinated by what's going on and the way the whole drama was played with uh, Oprah Winfrey. And today there were really special editions in every newspaper. We had a journalist who stood up all night to cover it and could give an, an assessment of the whole story early in the morning. What are the French saying about the interview? They're mostly saying that, well, he made uh, some admissions, but definitely he hasn't said the whole truth yet. And we try to understand why he's doing all this, what is he trying to avoid, maybe so many lawsuits that are expecting him or trying to protect some of his commercial activities. But definitely, seen from Paris, it's not yet the end of the story. Pierre Esky of the French political analysis website Rue Quatre-Vingt-Neuf speaking with us from Paris. Later in the program, we'll hear more reaction to Lance Armstrong's confession. Right now, we bring the focus back to Algeria, though. The hostage crisis there isn't over, and the fate of many of the hostages remains a mystery. But some of the workers who were held by the Islamist militants are now free and talking. This Algerian man says he was in a room with 260 other captives when the Algerian army started its rescue operation. When the firing got intense, he says, everyone fled through a back door. If it hadn't been for the army, he added, we would have never gotten out. These three rescued British citizens echoed that sentiment. I think they did a fantastic job. I was very impressed with the Algerian army. Well, I feel sorry for anybody who's been hurt. Army and the gendarmes did a fantastic job. Just kept us all nice and safe and fought off the bad guys. Very relieved to be out, obviously. Um, as much as we're glad to be out, our thoughts are with colleagues that are still there at the moment. Some of the confusion surrounding the Algerian crisis is due to the very remote location of the plant. The natural gas facility where the hostages were taken is literally in the middle of the Sahara Desert. It's some 800 miles south of the Algerian capital. The BBC, by the way, has a great map of the location, which really helped me get my bearings. You can see it at theworld.org. The plant, run by BP and other companies, is also huge, and hundreds of people were working there, which adds to the confusion. The facility was built by the American firm KBR, and Kevin McDonald helped design the place as chief engineer with the British company MW Kellogg. 
It's basically split into two areas, the central processing unit where uh, the gas comes in and gets treated and sent back up to the coast, and the living area, which is about a mile away. It's 25 miles from Inaminas town, and Inaminas is a pretty isolated spot. From there, it's a 25-mile bus ride out to the plant through just desert. I mean, it's, it's absolutely barren. How many uh, acres does it cover? I guess the, the living area itself must be about half a mile by half a mile square. The main processing plant is about a mile long by half a mile wide. And there is absolutely nothing else there other than a military base, which is right next door to the accommodation area. What year was it built? Uh, we, we started building it, I think, in 2004, 2005, and we finished it in 2006. So 2004, that would have been uh, after the Algerian Civil War. Did the government express any concern about the plant's vulnerability uh, at the time it started construction to anyone who wanted to attack it? The security risk was well known, and we had UK mercenaries that were out there that looked after the security, who set up observation posts out in the desert to keep an eye out for anybody coming in. But they could only do that during the day. At, at night, everybody had to pull back inside the camp perimeter. Wow. So even then, th- th- it was known that there was some vulnerability. Oh, for sure, yeah. I mean, the first thing we did when we arrived was stash our gear and go straight into a security uh, briefing. So what reaction did you have when you heard that this BP operator plant was attacked this way? I wasn't entirely surprised that it was attacked. What did surprise me was that they were able to penetrate the camp area and take hostages. The first attack was on a convoy that was on its way to Inaminas for for guys to go home. That's under armed escort, and they would have, I'm sure, radioed back that they were under attack, which I would have thought would have given people enough time to prepare a defense of the camp. Kevin, do you get why it is so hard right now to get information from there? No, that is the one thing that has caused me a great deal of frustration, because obviously I've been following it very closely. I know quite a few of the guys that are probably down there. I find it very frustrating that nobody seems to know anything. Whilst it's a big facility, there aren't really many places to hide. You know, you are sitting out in the open desert. Is there closed-circuit television inside the plant, on the perimeter, on the fences? Not that I'm aware of, no. To say that it's the most remote place in the world is probably true. But on the, on the other hand, it is extremely well equipped with communications. I mean, you, you go down there, your BlackBerry will work fine. But if the attackers wanted to, if they have kidnapped people, I mean, they could go in an infinite number of directions away from the plant. Then it would be, I would think, pretty impossible to find people. Well, no, you can't go in an infinite number of directions because to the south of the plant, there is a 60 meter high cliff, which cuts off any route going that way. To the left, the west side, there is also only one small track that you can travel down to get out. And that has to go right past the military camp. To the north and to the east, there is open desert, but it's not territory that you could make a great deal of speed over. Having designed and helped build this plant, have you stayed there yourself, and what was that like? I've been out there uh, over the period of time for uh, six or seven months. It's quite comfortable. You've got satellite television in your small but adequate room. It was a good social working environment. One unconfirmed report I saw yesterday, Kevin, suggested that one of the militants who attacked the plant spoke perfect English and that the attackers generally had an intimate knowledge of the plant. If that's true, who would have been able to obtain that information? It's not a big surprise. A lot of the Algerians do speak pretty good English because they've had a lot of contact with UK and US people. 
any of the workers could have given them an idea of the layout of the plant. You can have a good look at it yourself on Google Earth. And when you say one of the workers might have given it to them, you're not saying that as a kind of inside job, but just, you know, it, that stuff leaks, presumably. Yeah, it's easy enough to get that sort of information. It wouldn't even necessarily have to be overt. You could get that sort of information over a cup of tea. Well, Kevin McDonald, really good to speak with you. Okay, you're welcome. One piece of information about the hostage crisis in Algeria that has firmed up is who did it. A group linked to al-Qaeda has claimed responsibility for taking the hostages. The group claims it acted in retaliation for France's intervention in neighboring Mali. Canadian diplomat Robert Fowler knows what it's like to be abducted in that part of the world. In late 2008, he was taken hostage at gunpoint along the border separating Mali and Niger. Fowler told the BBC today that he remembers two figures leaping out of a vehicle with AK-47s. He and a friend were then marched to the kidnapper's vehicle. So began their four nightmarish months as hostages. We were not beaten or abused. But without a doubt, even the worst part of it was the fear. Um, fear when I got up in the morning, fear when I went to bed at night, fear that it would end in a tent with a knife at my throat, and fear that my family and friends could watch it over and over again on YouTube. Fowler also told the BBC that for him the most remarkable thing about his detention was how young his captors were. And when I say young, there were three of them whose voices hadn't broken, and the bulk of them were in their late teens and 20s. Um, they, you know, they didn't want cool shoes or, or, or sunglasses or MP3 players. They were absolutely focused on their mission. And Fowler added they were convinced they'd be amply rewarded for their work. At one point, at a very, very difficult passage of sand dunes, um, the fellow delegated to guard me became very nervous, unstable, and he suddenly stripped his AK off his shoulder, thrust it vertically in my face, saying, kill me, I'm ready for paradise. As far as what his captors wanted to accomplish, Canadian diplomat Robert Fowler said they told him their goal was to create chaos across North Africa so their jihad could thrive. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health, preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey, and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In China, many urban-educated women in their 20s have a lot to celebrate. Better jobs, better pay, and more choice than they would have had even a decade ago. But they're also under pressure to hurry up and get hitched. Those who don't marry by their late 20s are getting slapped with a dubious label, leftover women. Here's The World's Mary Kay Magstad. Huang Yuanyuan is working late at her job in a Beijing radio newsroom. She's also stressing out about the fact that the next day, she'll turn 29. <laughs> One year older, I'm nervous. Why? Because I'm still single, I have no boyfriend, I have big pressure from getting married. Pressure from her parents, from friends, and from society, she says. Huang is a confident, personable young woman with a good salary, her own apartment, an M.A. from one of China's top universities, and a wealth of friends. Still, she knows that women like her in China these days are called shengnu, or leftover women, and it stings. 
This television drama that ran a couple of years ago was called Old Women Should Get Married. It featured a 33-year-old who watched her younger sister get married, suffered through blind dates, including one who turned out to be a drug dealer, and put up with her family telling her to stop being so picky and just find a man. This kind of message gets hammered through in multiple ways in the state-run media. Even the webpage of the government's supposedly feminist All-China Women's Federation featured articles about leftover women until enough women complained. So what's all this about? I argue that the leftover women term is actually part of a sexist media campaign by the government, which is facing a severe demographic crisis. Leda Hong Fincher is an American, doing her sociology PhD at Tsinghua University in Beijing. She's written about the leftover women phenomenon. She says state-run media started using the term in 2007, the same year the government warned that China's gender imbalance, caused by selective abortions because of the one-child policy, was a serious problem. Ever since 2007, the state media has aggressively disseminated this term in a lot of surveys and news reports and columns and even cartoons and pictures, basically stigmatizing educated women over the age of 27 or 30 who are still single. But the gender imbalance in China is one of too many men. There are an estimated 20 million more men under age 30 than women of the same age. So why the pressure on women to marry, specifically on educated urban women? Huang Yuanyuan says many men want to marry down. Um, because there is an opinion that the A-quality guy will find B-quality women, and B-quality guy will find C-quality women, and C-quality men will find D-quality women, so no one finds the A-quality woman. But it's the A-quality women the government wants most to procreate, to improve the quality of the population, says Leita Hong Fincher. The Chinese population planning policy used to officially have a law promoting eugenics. It actually had the word eugenics as part of its policy. And now they've changed the name because I think they realize that that's kind of offensive. But effectively, that's what their policy is. Hong Fincher says some local governments in China have even taken to organizing mixers where educated young women can meet eligible bachelors. The goal is not only to improve the gene pool, but also to get as many men paired off and tied down as possible, lest an army of restless single men create social havoc. But some women hold out for guys of a certain height or education level or income or those who already have houses and cars. And many guys insist on women who are young, beautiful, and not as well-off or well-educated as they are. So. The state-run media keep up a barrage of messages aimed at picky, educated women. Hong Fincher reads one, titled, Leftover Women Do Not Deserve Our Sympathy. These kinds of girls hope to further their education in order to increase their competitiveness. The tragedy is they don't realize that as women age, they are worth less and less. So by the time they get their MA or PhD, they are already old, like yellowed pearls. Ouch. Then again, even in the United States, 
Women of a certain age might remember a 1986 Newsweek article that said women who weren't married by age 40 had a better chance of being killed by a terrorist than of finding a husband. It created its own wave of anxiety in educated professional women at the time and was widely quoted, like in the movie Sleepless in Seattle. Just because someone is looking for a nice guy, it doesn't make them desperate. How about rapacious and love-starved? No. It is easier to be killed by a terrorist than to find a husband after the that age of 40. That is absolutely untrue. Right, honey. Right. She was right. Newsweek eventually admitted it was wrong, and a follow-up study found that more than two-thirds of the college-educated single women who were 40 in 1986 had married by 2010. So it's a little odd to be calling educated Chinese women left over at age 27 or 30. Even if China does have a long tradition of women marrying young, the average age of marriage has been rising, as it often does in places where women become more educated. A 29-year-old marketing executive who asks to go by her English name, Elisa, says, actually, being single at this age isn't half bad. Living alone, I can do whatever I like. I can hang out with my good friends whenever I like. I enjoy working. I love my job. I can do a lot of stuff all by myself, like reading, going to theaters. And I think the reason why I enjoy my life is that I have many single friends around me. Sure, she says on a hurried lunch break. Her parents would like her to find someone. And she's gone on a few blind dates for their sake. Disaster. (laughs) Because I didn't went for these voluntarily uh, because my parents asked me to do it. I did it just because I want them to stop worrying about me, to show them that at least I'm trying, so it'll be better. (laughs) Elisa says she'd love to meet the right guy, but it'll happen when it happens. Meanwhile, life is good, and she has to get back to work. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. We're focusing on a dense urban metropolis for our GeoQuiz today. We want you to name a city where traffic can be so slow that commuting becomes painful. Nine million people live in the city, but millions more live in the surrounding metropolitan area. That means lots of cars, lots of traffic, and lots of pollution. So the city has become a major transportation makeover. It includes a bike-sharing program, an expanded bus rapid transit system, and parking meters. And guess what? Those clogged transport arteries have cleared a bit, which is why this traffic-clogged Latin American capital has just won an award for sustainable transportation. We'll have more on that in just a bit. For now, refresh your bus ticket and get working on the answer. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up, Lance Armstrong and that awkward moment when a charity celebrity founder becomes a tainted celebrity. And later, an intrepid reporter faces a tough choice aboard a Jerusalem tram. He says, I have to take off my pants. What do you think? You going to take off your pants? Yeah, he just told me to. Should we do it? Your call. All right, let's do it. That's ahead on The World. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, helping patients take action for their health 
preparing frontline healthcare workers who help them along the healthcare journey and ensuring that more people around the world living with chronic disease get the proper care they need. MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. We knew it was going to happen, and it did, and we're still talking about it. It's fascinating. Last night, Lance Armstrong finally came clean to Oprah. He admitted repeatedly that he took banned substances during his seventh straight Tour de France wins. But how could he justify lying to so many for so long? The world's Alex Galifant takes a look. Did it feel wrong? At the time? Mm-hmm. No. It did not even feel wrong. No. It's scary. Did you feel bad about it? No. Even scarier. Lance Armstrong surely must be the most noxious, cold-hearted, and immoral cyclist ever to suit up in spandex, right? Well, let's put on the charitable hat of science and look at this a different way. People have an incredible capacity to rationalize all kinds of things. This is Dan Ariely. His book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, sounds like something P.T. Barnum might have written, but he's got credentials. Ariely is a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at MIT. He says Armstrong was able to think of himself as a champion and a role model while suppressing an incompatible truth. Seriously, though? You and I sit here and we said we could have never taken drugs and justify to ourselves. But you know what? My guess is that if we took it slowly over time, a little bit here, a little bit there, if everybody else took it, we too could have created the worldview in which we would have rationalized. I used to hear this a lot at the Olympic Games, when East Germany was vacuuming up gold medals. East Germany ran a program of systematic doping, the result of a statewide worldview. What's so wrong about drugs if it's for the greater glory of the German Democratic Republic? I had this exercise where, you know, because I kept hearing, you know, I'm, you a, cheat. I'm, I'm a drug cheat, I'm a cheat, yeah. I'm a cheater. And I went and looked up, I just looked up the definition of cheat. Yes. And the definition of cheat is to gain an advantage on a rival or a foe that they don't have or that, you know, I didn't view it that way. I viewed it as, as a level playing field. Apparently it made sense to Armstrong at the time. Other cyclists have told how doping became just another part of their training regimen, just routine stuff they did while they were on the job. In Armstrong's case, his charity work probably played a part too, says Dan Ariely. And one of the things we find out is that when people steal in the name of a good charity, they actually feel more morally free to be more dishonest. The lie that supported the image of Lance, the cancer-beating superhero, he might have thought that was actually helping people. But Ariely doesn't think we should just single out Lance Armstrong. We all have the capacity for this kind of thing. Sports stars, journalists, bankers trading in mortgage-backed securities. It's a slippery slope. It's a one-step rationalization. And then at some point, it's too late. And then things become very, very different. Warm, fuzzy stories, even if they're built on lies, are much more powerful than cold moral rules. And if your story fits what you think is socially acceptable within your world, whether it's doping in cycling or overcharging clients in banking, so much the better. You're unlikely to attend to any moral problems buried deep within. So if it's human nature, what's to be done about it? How do you get people to not be able to partition morality 
in such simple ways. If the threat of punishment doesn't work, and it doesn't always, does it? Maybe we need access to more of our heroes' lives, to join up all the parts of their stories for ourselves. Uh, that's an interesting uh, approach. I'm not sure how many cyclists would want uh, lots of people running around their house and into their bedrooms. Yeah, that's probably right. Before I go, one other thing. Bullying people and suing others for telling the truth, it's harder to explain that away. Self-deception just doesn't cover it. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant. Before his televised confession aired, Lance Armstrong had already resigned as chairman of Livestrong, the cancer-fighting foundation he founded. Livestrong raised hundreds of millions of dollars to help cancer survivors over the years, but today those familiar yellow Livestrong bracelets have become the butt of so many jokes like Live Wrong and Lie Strong. So what happens when a charity becomes tainted by its celebrity founder? Well, that's also happened in Britain recently. Jimmy Savile was a BBC television host and a tenacious charity fundraiser. During his lifetime, he raised about $30 million for his foundations. After Savile's death in 2011, it emerged that he'd sexually abused children throughout his career, and his charitable foundations have since shut down. Kathy Farrow says that doesn't have to happen to Livestrong. Farrow is with the Cass Center for Charity Effectiveness at City University London. Everything is going to depend on the extent to which the charity handles, first of all, handles its communications well, and secondly, the extent to which it can set some clear blue water between what a founder or donor has done and what it's trying to do for another set of uh, people in need who are, after all, innocent victims. Well, this is a statement from uh, the Livestrong charity this week. Uh, Lance apologized to our staff, and we accepted his apology in order to move on and chart a strong, independent course, independent being the key word. How can they disassociate themselves from Armstrong, putting that, as you say, clear blue water between them? Well, first of all, I think they have to to talk about all their other supporters. They have to talk about the needs of the people they're helping. They have to talk about the extent to which Lance Armstrong himself wanted to do good. I think that it's it's a matter of very much emphasizing the positive, emphasizing the independence. This is an organization which, which now runs under its own steam. Kathy, do you think it makes any difference in terms of the charity and their celebrity kind of spokesperson and what that celebrity spokesperson did? In Lance Armstrong's case, he's been lying about taking performance-enhancing drugs, has finally come clean. In the case of Jimmy Savile, though, he uh, no longer alive but was found to be a serial pedophile. There's no way that can be dealt with quickly and cleanly and put to bed. That was a a very pervasive and amoral behavior, which is still shrouded in mystery, where revelations are still coming out. It involved, you know, very deep abuse of young people. I think there was no way that the image was going to be restorable. But you think there's still hope for Livestrong, uh, Lance Armstrong? Yes, yes, I do. Yeah. I, I think that I think to some extent, people could even understand that um, what um, Armstrong did was to some extent part of a whole culture of drug taking in the in the sports sector. Kathy Farrow at the Cass Center for Charity Effectiveness at City University London. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we've got some editorial cartoons about Lance Armstrong's fall from grace. More than one has dubbed his mea culpa on Oprah as stop one on his tour de truth. You can see the slideshow at theworld.org. 
Now, this next story could be called Tour to France. It's a historic moment for train travel in Spain. The country has opened its first high-speed connection to the rest of Europe. It's the Barcelona to Paris line. And its story, the story of all trains in Spain, is one of fits and starts. For more than a century, crossing the border into France by rail veered between hassle and nightmare. The world's Jerry Haddon has just ridden the new train all the way to Paris. Wait a minute. This is a story about trains, but modern, high-speed trains. This is what they sound like. Sleek, quiet. Average cruising speed, 250 miles an hour. And not a ripple on the surface of your drink. Classy, says Spanish retiree Javier Baró, who's been waiting his whole life for this. Until now, I never even considered taking the normal train to France, Baró says. Not once. I used to drive. The regular train is really slow. It typically takes about three hours to cover the 100 miles to the border. To Paris, it's 12 hours or more. But on this high-velocity number, 6 hours, 41 minutes. This is a huge milestone for Spain. Historically, it's lagged behind most of Western Europe when it came to public transport. Under the authoritarian regime of General Francisco Franco, the nation rolled out track slowly, announcing in newsreels progress that would have been old news elsewhere. This reel from the 1960s boasts of new passenger trains that could reach 75 miles an hour. Spanish trains were more a symbol of isolation than advancement, especially when it came to reaching the rest of Europe. Blame it on the track gauge. From the get-go, Spain purposely made its tracks wider than the rest of Europe's. That meant Spanish trains couldn't cross into France, and more importantly, French trains couldn't roll into Spain, as in invade. For travelers, it meant losing a lot of time. Sylvie, who's riding the new high-speed train today, is half Spanish, half French. She spent her summers as a kid in the 1950s in Spain. It was like returning to the 18th century, she says. The trains and their coal engines, oh yes, they ran on coal. It smelled. Those trips were interminable. After Franco died in 1975, Spain seemed to make up for lost time. Today, it's a world leader in high-speed trains, in building them and using them. For several years, trains like this one to Paris have been careening around the country, but not to Barcelona or, by extension, the rest of Europe. The Catalans of Barcelona believe the delay has been political. So says passenger Miguel Ribes, a Barcelona native who's on the train today with his wife, Pilar. Catalonia is Spain's front door to Europe, he says, but Spain has always treated us like its backside. They have high-speed routes all the way to Galicia and more to the south with connections to Portugal. Why didn't they hurry to finish this one? Catalan leaders are currently pushing for independence from Spain, and they've long included the fast train controversy in their arguments. But now the train is rolling. Paris lies ahead. Most riders just seem glad, even giddy. Most. Sylvie, who complained about the coal-fired trains, still pines for the old days. She herself is a throwback. See, she's a hobo, sort of. She did have a ticket from Barcelona for the first leg of the trip, but she's hoping to hide on board until Paris. If we see the conductor, I hope he can cut me a deal, she says, nervously smoking a cigarette outside during a brief stop. I don't have the money. I'm sort of on the margins of society. 
Sylvie says she felt more comfortable on the old cheap trains, especially on the Spanish side. Despite their problems, she says they were more fun. One train, she recalls, was right out of a western. Wooden sides, wooden seats. You'd pack a basket of food for the trip. People would open the baskets on the train, she says, and share together. Maybe I had ham, but you had some fruit. Today, she says, everyone has a smartphone, and no one even looks up. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon. Jerry shot video aboard Spain's new fast train to Paris. You can see it at theworld.org. So for our GeoQuiz, we asked you to name a Latin American capital where traffic can be painfully slow and which has never, nevertheless just been handed a sustainable transport award. The award is given each year by the New York-based Institute for Transportation and Development Policy. It says the Mexican capital has improved the livability, mobility, and quality of life of its residents through programs that focus more on people rather than cars. Journalist Frank Contreras lives and works in Mexico City and knows well the city's traffic woes. I've been living here just over 16 years now, Marco, and I'll tell you this morning, um, the distance I traveled was uh, probably around three miles, four miles, and it took me about 40 minutes. So there was traffic this morning. But compare that to when you first moved there. Well, that that would be a fair comparison. Um, Pretty much the same. (laughs) Pretty much much the same. So what's Uh, changed then? I think what's changed really is that the government here, the city government, which is run by a leftist political party and has been since 1997, they've put in some new thoroughfares um, speeding along traffic. They've also um, improved public transportation. We have this thing called the Metro bus now, and it was modeled after train-like buses that are being used in, in South America, places like Bogota. And that system works pretty well. It actually has helped traffic along some of the more important avenues running right through the city. So you think for people who take mass transit on a regular basis in Mexico City, they've noticed some changes? One of the ways you can really tell that improvement has taken place is by just looking up at the sky, looking at the quality of the air, Marco. And I'll tell you, in the years that I've been living here, that's definitely improved. And of course, the vast amount of contamination and pollutants are coming from vehicles. And because vehicles are circulating more easily, that means we're getting less pollution. So there is a sign that things are definitely improving here. Now, another reason uh, Mexico City got this award is because it's introduced a bicycle sharing program. It's been pretty popular there in Mexico City. Uh, Have you tried it? I have. It's a great system. You can um, spend 300 pesos, that's less than $30 a year, to get a card. And then you'll find these stations around certain parts of the city. I shouldn't say the entire city, but places where you can you know, use the card and you unlock one of the bicycles and then you can just take off. It's a nice red bike, well-maintained, and people are using it in specific parts of the city. These are all systems that were put in place under, as I said, the left-leaning government of somebody named Marcelo Ebrard. Keep an eye on his name because he's starting to win prizes for the city all over the place, Um, sustainable development prizes, um, environmental prizes, things like that. And I mention him because he wants to make a run for the presidency the next time around in about six years from now. All right, Marcelo Ebrard, note taken. Now, one thing that really struck me about Mexico City's honor was the way the Institute for Transportation Development Policy singled out the city's parking program. There are now parking meters. I mean, personally, I hate parking meters, but how do people in Mexico City respond to this change? For the most part, I would say they were quite surprised. They've never seen anything like that, you know, where you actually can put in coins and then and then have a place reserved for you legally. Um, some people are still not sure, you know, how it should function. They think you put the coins in and you basically get a place to park all day long, which of course is not true. It's a meter like anywhere else 
uh, in the world. And so some people are for it, but there are a lot of people who don't want to see that happen. There's an old system in place here where guys on the street use a bright red flag to, to wave you in and then you pay a little to them and they watch your car all day long. And so it's this old system competing with the new one, Marco. Yeah. And it's funny just how a little thing like a parking meter could have an effect on the air quality in Mexico City. Frank, good to speak with you. Thank you, Marco. Good to speak with you. Reporter Frank Contreras and our GeoAnswer, Mexico City. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Earlier this week, about 4,000 people got on the subway in New York City, took off their pants, and rode in their underwear. It was the 12th annual No Pants subway ride, and thousands of people in 17 countries participated in the stunt. This year, for the first time, people went pantsless in Jerusalem. And as Daniel Estrin reports, that's kind of a daring thing to do in a city filled with devout Orthodox Jews and Muslims. No pants in Jerusalem? And on the new light rail train that snakes right through ultra-Orthodox and Palestinian neighborhoods? From the moment I stumbled upon the Facebook event, I knew it was a recipe for disaster. Especially when I saw who showed up Sunday evening at the designated meeting point. My custom here is a Haredi. I'm supposed to be a Haredi without pants. You want people to to think on the tram that you're an ultra-Orthodox Jew who's taken off your pants? Yep. Wow, you're really brave. I'm going to be stoned, I think. Yeah, I think he's a bit nervous. Boaz Balachsan is a freelance animator in Jerusalem and the guy who organized the stunt. He says he did it because he thinks Jerusalem needs it. I really love Jerusalem, but it is like full of controversies, you know, like everything is political. You can't do anything without having it become political. We need as like young people living in the city to try to create something non-political, non-ideological. We deserve to have our fun. You don't think that this is actually a provocation? in a place where there are so many religious people of all different stripes that maybe for you this is something fun and for them this is extremely offensive. Um, Some might get a little mad, but I think it will pass when they like uh, understand the the ridiculousness of the deed. About 30 guys and a couple of gals show up. Everyone's in their 20s. And everyone's Israeli, except for a few American high school grads studying in a religious Jewish seminary, a yeshiva. Uh, Welcome to the first uh, no-pants tram ride. People head out to different light rail stations. The plan is to get on, ride one stop, take off your pants, put them in a backpack, and continue reading your book or fiddling with your iPhone. At every stop, more pantsless people will board the tram, ignoring the others. Bear in mind that this is 6.30 p.m. at the tail end of rush hour on what in Israel is a regular workday. Somehow, I don't really believe people are actually going to have the guts to do this. We board the train. It's packed. We ride one stop. Then everyone starts taking off their pants. At first, nothing. And then, nothing. The whole trip lasts about 20 minutes, and it's quiet. No yelling, no protests. We ride to the end of the line and get off with the rest of the passengers. And then they begin to talk. I saw 10 people. See, it's not a pants. Everybody is boxes. Everybody. <laughs> Boaz, the organizer, approaches me in his short black briefs. I won't take it. You, you won't take what? Are you joining us or just uh, documenting? No, just documenting. No, no, no. no impossible. No, I told impossible? you. You can only come to document if you join. I don't know. It that's can't that's be. a hard no, no, role no. for a journalist, man. <laughs> if you come, you join. Come on. I consult with a friend who tagged along. 
All right, he just yeah, he just got mad at me. He says I have to take off my pants. What do you think? You gonna take off your pants? Yeah, he just told me to. Should we do it? Your call. All right, let's do it. Yeah. I'm doing it. Yep, I did it. I rode the Jerusalem light rail train from the Mount Herzl stop all the way downtown in my red Fruit of the Loom boxer briefs. And I was too nervous to look up for my smartphone. I get off at City Hall with the rest of the pantsless participants, and I feel invigorated. It's awesome. The people that laughed the most were uh, ultra-Orthodox type people, which was hilarious. We have one guy who, who dressed up as an ultra-Orthodox guy. And this couple, this ultra-Orthodox couple... Yeah, they were trying not to laugh the whole time. They were staring. They were, they were staring at me all the time, and they were yeah, trying not to not laugh. Trying. And the minute he gets on and they see him, they're they, lost it. they just lost it. The whole group walks to a bar to celebrate. I run up to the front where Boaz, the organizer, is. People are really accepting of, uh, of the entire situation. We should reconsider it, uh, what we think about Jerusalem altogether. Maybe it's the fact that Jerusalemites have just come out of a week of cataclysmic rainstorms and frigid temperatures. Or maybe it's always the case that if you scratch beneath the surface, Jerusalem has more of a sense of humor than we realize. Whatever the reason, Jerusalemites were clearly ready for a good laugh. For The World, I'm Daniel Estrin in Jerusalem. Reconsider for yourself pictures of Israelis without pants. We have a slideshow from Jerusalem, and you know you're headed to your browser right now and going to theworld.org. Daniel's story was produced in collaboration with tabletmag.com. I want to end the week with music from a young Ethiopian up-and-comer. He's Samuel Yerga. At the age of 16, he nailed an audition to attend music school in Addis Ababa. Now he's in his 20s and shows incredible promise as a pianist and composer with the confidence that comes from playing the way he wants to. This track from his debut recording is called Firma en Awereket. It's a kind of music his teachers in Addis frowned on. It's not classical, too jazzy, too funky. And so between the pushing and the pulling, Samuel Yurga wasn't invited back to music school. But the classical training did pay off. Perhaps his teachers would have a softer spot for tunes like this one, Drop Me There. Losing his seat at music school didn't stop Samuel Yerga. In a way, it gave him license to experiment with different musical styles. A chance to tinkle the keys for Dub Colossus, a UK-Ethiopian music collective, was one way to experiment with different grooves. Still, Samuel Yerga needed to branch out, release a solo album, and the result is the music you're hearing now from his CD, Guzo. You can hear more samples from Guzo and watch a video on the making of at theworld.org. 
We close the week with his cover of the classic early 70s psychedelic soul tune, I Am the Black Gold of the Sun. This one features the incredible Creole Choir of Cuba and Nigerian-British singer Nicolette. Our theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman. The World tweets at PRI The World. I tweet at Marco Werman. That's where you'll find all of us when we're not on the radio. Until Monday, have a great weekend. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.